St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Recordings of Further Up, Further In, the monthly discussion group dedicated to studying challenging and enlightening texts of the Orthodox tradition, led by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So I wanted to start this class. Um, we're calling this a group, I guess, Further Up, Further In, which is just me spending about 10 or 15 seconds thinking of some kind of thing to name something. And I think, I don't know if it was, it was a C.S. Lewis thing. Uh, yeah, I, right? From Whatever it is, it's at least, if it's not directly, I think I even looked it up. I tried to Google it, but, <laughs> uh, and I think I even changed it. My first like email said something different and I changed it, but nobody noticed except you, Tyler. It escaped my notice. <laughs> Uh, this actually, the genesis of this really actually came from Tyler, who was asking for, uh, to kind of dig in uh, on certain, uh, to go a little bit further uh, in the Orthodox faith. And so I was trying to rack my brain without, reading the Fathers is rewarding, incredible, awesome. It's also incredibly hard. There's a reason why the other class were doing Ignatius instead of like Basil or Gregory, uh, because I would have to do a lot of homework ahead of time to choose the right text or the sections of text for us to focus on, because um, I don't want people to get lost in, uh, and maybe even this, uh, this book presents some of those challenges, um, which we can talk through. Uh, I hope with this book, which as I'm obviously holding something that nobody who's hearing a recording can see, uh, is Oliver Clement's The Roots of Christian Mysticism. There's at least two volumes, and there's a, definitely a PDF that's been shared. If you just Google this book, PDF, you will find it pretty easily within the first few hits. Um, but we hopefully we've read for part one. If you haven't read part one, that's okay. Uh, we'll make sure that you, it's obvious that you don't know or... <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, we will try to, uh, in the future, if you're able to read or, you know, a, a suggestion about reading this kind of stuff in general is if you don't understand something, just put a question mark and just keep reading because sometimes the text will actually tell you what he means in a paragraph or two later. Uh, I've encountered this a lot uh, in classes where you get somebody's like, oh, and they just they just kind of stop. But if you actually read the whole chapter, and maybe even in the next chapter, there might be something that things start to click or fall into place. So, uh, or it just doesn't, and then you have a question mark, and then as we're going through the text, you can be say, well, what does this mean? Um, especially as we start the the first chapter, I think uh, is rather easy to go uh, to talk about. Uh, Versus, for example, the, uh, the, the one on uh, God, unity, and difference, which is his kind of primer on Trinitarian theology. Probably the other reason why I chose this uh, is it's, he is, as the subtext, right, the, uh, the subtitle says, uh, text from the patristic era of commentary. Well, that is really, I mean, he's definitely curated for us but he's created a lot of quotes. So, and it's from like the heavy hitters of the tradition too. Like the first few chapters you realize, wow, I just read more Dionysius than I maybe I've ever read before in my life uh, since this feast day was just this past week. 
uh, or Maximus, and you can tell he's le he leans pretty heavily on Di uh, Dionysius, I like to call him Dennis sometimes, uh, uh, <laughs> Gregory the Theologian, uh, Maximus the Confessor, uh, I'm trying to think, sometimes he'll, he, he also likes to quote from Origen, uh, Origen is kind of font from which Basil and Gregory uh, drank from and diluted some things and diverted other aspects of Origen or corrected them, and the tradition continues to kind of correct the influence of Origen uh, up into Maximus and on. Uh, Maximus is the great kind of corrector, if you will, to Origen. Uh, but the other reason, I guess I'm naming at least three reasons here, uh, is for this book is that the first part sets up a nice anthropology, um, apophatic theology, Christology, Trinitarian theology, and then kind of where the human exists in the universe, uh, anthropology. And then the, the second part then gets us into uh, talking about what it means to be uh, the church, uh, does kind of sacramental things, and then it begins to, as part two, I love the title for it, Initiation for Warfare, uh, to begin talking about uh, interior com combat and the passions, and then the third is then about prayer and um, love and the kind of the, he's in a way kind of created the tripartite, which is a tradition within uh, the tradition to talk about uh, the way in which we are, and I'm right off, of course, as I go here, then my mind starts to sk uh, slip as to what, he'll probably bring it up. There's the purgation, um, purgate, there's the three levels, now I'm forgetting them. Purgation, uh, one of them is deification, and then I'm forgetting the, uh, the middle one, I think. Illumination. Illumination, yeah. excellent. So these all work uh, together. They're not kind of seen as like you get to step one and then you get to step two and you don't really need step one anymore. <laughs> or then once you get to step three, you're like flying through the air or something. All of these are, uh, they work together, but there is an idea uh, of a kind of hierarchy of uh, the Christian struggle, the Christian life, uh, and our ascent into God. So, um, was there, well, I'd like to start us off, and then we can go from here, uh, which is, let me make sure, actually on uh, page 18 is the first place, and then we can move backwards or forwards, because I'm skipping ahead at least a few pages, because I thought, uh, the very, uh, sorry, bottom of page 17 is where I want us to begin. Is that okay with PDF-wise? Yeah. It's, it starts with, uh, right after that quote from Chrysostom, because I know that we've got, I see some volume twos floating around. It corresponds. Excellent. That's good to know. <laughs> so, we can see the whole process displayed in the life of a cer certain Hilary of Poitiers, a 4th century Roman French citizen remarkable for his relevance to, our t to ourselves. The elite of the declining Roman Empire lived in an intellectual climate very like our own materialism and skepticism, together with dabblings and syncretist beliefs, resulting in a mixture very different from the ancient religions, which had long ago been rendered obsolete by rationalism and the discovery of the individual. In short, what was then true of restricted urban groups is now true of everybody. I wanted to start here by just noting 
and maybe you've already come to this conclusion, uh, maybe that's not even from reading this book, but realizing and becoming an Orthodox Christian in the first place, or staying put in the Orthodox Church, because there are folks who are born to Orthodox Church and leave, uh, unfortunately, um, that we live in a time that, as uh, Clement says here, materialism and skepticism, dabblings and syncretist beliefs, uh, where all of the ancient religions have all kind of fallen apart. I mean, we kind of live in uh, the decay or the decline of, you know, you look at Protestant Christianity used to be like the backbone of the United States of America to talk about our immediate context, and that is basically falling apart. Uh, there's no agreement for the moral or how you know to do any kind of, much less governance, <laughs> how a vision for America. Uh, but that the fathers uh, lived in a time similar to our time. Uh, obviously, there was no Protestant church for them. <laughs> uh, but there is definitely this. Um, uh, dissolution that's going on and uh, it results in you get for their materialism and skepticism I mean is that not especially as we're here in Oak Ridge uh, or around a university town uh, materialism skepticism uh, you could say scientism as a kind of modern uh, problem uh, and then synchrist, uh, syncretist beliefs I mean Barnes and Noble Go to the metaphysics section of Barnes and Noble and tell me that we don't live in a time where um, everything is mixed. I mean, you probably could get a good idea or barometer for the way things are right now by just going and looking uh, at what the Unitarian Universalist Church yeah. church had group assembly down the road, uh, what they are looking for, what they're doing, what they're are looking for, and. Unfortunately, it doesn't really offer too much because it's a hodgepodge of everything because anything and everything goes. Um, there's a great Garrison Keillor uh, joke uh, about uh, what a uni Unitarian Universalist uh, funeral is an occasion of. Has anyone ever heard this joke? It's an occasion of all dressed up and nowhere to go. Because <laughs> they don't really believe that there's anything else beyond. So. There's the funeral. Um, so, you know, Orthodox Christianity, uh, as you can see from the fathers, and we, part of what's our kind of, I say our heritage is exactly this, that we see how the fathers dealt with things, interpreted scripture, uh, and lived, and because that is the tradition that was handed on to us, and they're actually extremely uh, helpful for us today. Uh, they're not just relics uh, of a time long ago in a distant galaxy or something. Um, they are able, if you w want to, and as kind of at the end of the epistle of St. Ignatius this morning to the Magnesians about his exhortation to them to study the apostles uh, and the Lord's teaching and doctrine, uh, it helps to actually read them. So hopefully... Uh, with all that's around us uh, and our particular mix of uh, pressures or challenges, uh, exploring some of what the fathers have to say, um, especially I feel like we're in a real time of despair um, and like a negativity that I don't remember. And I don't think that's just me like pining for days of yore. I don't have that many days of yore. <laughs> I guess they weren't that long ago, but um, 
it just seems like even the things since I, when I was even in college, you know, more than a decade ago, all of that has just kind of, we're like in a different universe. Um, and being able to dig in with the fathers uh, helps to understand that Christianity is not just kind of a felt uh, sentimentalism. Uh, it's not an arid rationalism, but it actually is something that is a boon to our soul. And it actually gives us a vision of what it means to be human, of the great questions that we have before us. What does it mean to be free? Are we free in the first place? Is there something more than just material? Who is God? What am I destined for? These are all the kind of things that uh, Clement wants to begin to use the fathers to help um, navigate. Uh, so why he entitled this first chapter, Quest, Encounter, and Decision. And with that, I just talked a whole lot. So <laughs> any questions or comments about some of these, you know, the, his, the way he argues about this or synthesizes uh, these quotes, um, if not, I, the, even the next uh, paragraph, I don't know if we want to, I'm not going to read this huge quote from Hillary <laughs> from 18 to uh, 21, but. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the searching that he did, mm -hmm. where he came from and how he got there and what hope he found. Like you said, it's our faith is, is not just a faith, it's a it's an all-encompassing and hope-giving worldview. That's that's the comfort that I think. I thought it was the most succinct digestible part of this. The whole first part eluded me. Like really? Two, yeah, because I skipped ahead and I was like looking at the second third parts for your breakdown. And those like, okay, you know, relative to the first part. I don't know why that was, but excellent. Okay. Just because the the content is a little bit more Trying to find abstract? Bit, yeah, well, maybe not abstract, but it seemed very uh, diverse, maybe. He's hitting on a lot of subjects that I, that. I, like, how do I find the single thread that's running through these? That's fair. I think one of the things, um, as he uh, begins, as we can even, well, let's finish with this um the next uh, paragraph of Hillary, then we can go back to uh, Gregory and uh, how he starts off with Nyssa and uh, Augustine. Um, uh, there on page 18, Hillary quickly took the measure of a society bent upon instant gratification. <laughs> if he only knew. Uh, <laughs> uh, driven on by his horror at the prospect of purposelessness and nothingness set out on the search for the meaning of life. I think uh, part of what Clement is trying to do from the beginning, especially with this quote from Augustine, uh, well, from the beginning, right, Gregory, uh, we live a, a dead life. Um, and then Augustine with this kind of uh, almost Socratic, um, uh, what is this, page 15, at the very beginning of the chapter, where he's going on, like, Hello, like life is going by, life is fleeting. Uh, you can read this in any of the kind of basic wisdom throughout the world, right? Like there's an element here, especially when you're out of your teenage years and maybe college years, you start realizing pretty quickly that life is going by pretty quickly. And that, that kind of question, I think that you even get to and, and Clement likes to engage with because he was in France. I think he's a generation older than like uh, Camus and Sartre and some of the other 
kind of existentialist philosophers who were the ones who really kind of came down to, uh, especially Camus, the question of the real question of philosophy. Does anyone know what his what he thought like the real question for philosophy is? Why you shouldn't kill yourself? Why you should or shouldn't kill yourself? Because of absolute despair. Either there's meaning, <laughs> and so, but where's meaning going to come from? It's not going to come from material. I mean, we've already come, that's a kind of uh, reductio ad absurdum, right? Like, material cannot define itself. <laughs> Scientism or the idea that we're going to find out how to ethically live because of evolutionary biology or all these, you know, things that they try to find reasonings for, they're not going to actually give you reasoning. Uh, I guess the, probably the only place that I've ever known the ethics from evolutionary biology or if you want to, the older form of that social Darwinism is uh, survival of the fittest, which then <laughs> we all know that it's the great Trump of every uh, debate and not that Trump. Uh, the, uh, you know, well, you're Hitler <laughs> uh, because it really does reduce down to if there's, so I think that is why um, you go to the top of 17, I mean, right in the smack down in the middle of 16, I think this quote from Augustine, uh, right after that quote from Irenaeus, a life without eternity is unworthy of the name of life. Only eternal life is true. Do you think he means by only eternal life is true that like our life here in this world, our physical life is meaningless? I don't think he means that. I think he means this life only has meaning because there is eternal life. Uh, go to the top of 17 and that um, the first paragraph on page 17 through intelligent and beautiful forms of creation the invisible gives structure and balance to the visible but the means employed are gravity death and disintegration humanity likewise consciously or not draws from the invisible not only the very idea of justice but also the high demands of knowledge and art and the possibility of those laws then set a limit to violence and protect friendship uh, and there's a great quote from Gregory about where do you think you get all of these abilities uh, to, to marvel at the world and the way that it is structured and all of the things, the, it was almost an argument from complexity um, that Gregory gives here. Uh, so we kind of have options as uh, humans to either choose the path that kind of Camus, I think, challenged. Either we choose the path of ultimately absurd living that even in the face of this kind of the Nietzschean return or um, oh, what do you call it the Nietzschean eternal recurrence. thank you eternal recurrence where you basically have uh, I'm going to choose the nothing in the face of and kind of stoic resignation that this is just what reality is uh, Camus goes the other route so well then maybe you need to end it because what's the point if there really is no point uh, and this is, I think, actually helpful uh, later in this, uh, where he will talk about um, the next chapter, uh, contemporary atheism as a purifying revolt, um, which what he means by that, I think, is uh, can, if you imagine two or three hundred years ago where Christianity is kind of underwritten, especially like Western Europe, Christianity is underwritten everything, right? Your local magistrate is, you know, some figurehead in the local church or like in the way that probably even here, you know, 50, 60, 50, 60 years ago, Christianity uh, was just so soaked in everything uh, that kind of, it gets hard to try and discern 
the authenticity of that. And that's why you have a lot of revolt against it. So I think part of what he sees is in modern atheistic or even kind of Nietzsche as a challenge to Christianity is to be able for Christianity to articulate itself better and to get a kind of radicalized Christianity to actually live out what it's supposed to do uh, instead of just react and say, oh, be quiet, <laughs> leave us alone. Uh, we're doing okay over here, uh, but then we don't actually live the faith that we uh, need to live. When, how old was Hillary when he began this search for the meaning of life? That's a great question. I don't know. My guess, uh, since the late antique world, I think most people probably died in their 40s and 50s. He probably is pretty young. And he, he, he is kind of one of those travelers, right? Like, what are all the things that he goes through? He goes through paganism. Then he even goes to, like, no God at all and nature worship. Uh, about, like, everything came about by chance. Well, <laughs> we have that as the basic option available to us today. Uh, I mean, this is really, when you actually study ancient philosophy, you can see how, and actually if you look at scientific revolutions, you can see how certain scientific revolutions or the breakthroughs um, that we have in the modern, early modern time period were revivals of ancient uh, Greek philosophical ideas. Uh, atoms came about, the understanding of atoms. Um, the, uh, some of the early breakthroughs you get in the early modern period are because they start embracing uh, and thinking about things uh, chance, uh, I'm thinking of like Lucretius on nature, I believe, uh, you get a very different uh, Christocentric, I'm not going to say Christocentric, but kind of theocentric worldview that was like so dominant. They start questioning those things and um, it's fascinating how most of what exists now existed then. There really isn't much that's new under the sun. <laughs> You don't get this portrayal of Roman society in late Roman, in, uh, late Ro in the late Roman West, in most of the history that I've read, either more like a fellow because of the Visigoths or whatever. Right, right, right. So you know, Augustine is fascinating on this because he's writing um, the city of God while Rome is basically burning or, or going down. Um, uh, reflection on Rome falling and. <laughs> to be really technical, the Roman Empire didn't stop existing until the 15th century. Uh, if you're a Greek, uh, 14, a good 15. Greek, yes. You, you, because even to this day, if you were in Turkey and you were to ask where the Greek Orthodox Patriarch is, they would refer to him as the Rum Patriarch because Rome is Roman. So uh, we have mostly because we're Anglo-Saxon and Western European, so dominantly, or our backgrounds, uh, our entire narration of these things is dictated in this kind of like dark ages after, you know, after the fifth century in the West. It's way more complicated than that. Um, you definitely had in the late Roman Empire, um, a lot of the Romans not being uh, friendly to the same Christianity is one of these elements. You had a lot of Persian and um, Let's say like far eastern religions 
<laughs> that were uh, coming and undermining Roman civic uh, religion because in Rome, religion really was the civic religion. That's kind of what Hillary, like, it kept everyone together. Um, I mean, this is true for religion. It always plays like this. In America, that was the, the civic religion of America was some form of Protestantism. Uh, kind of, if you want to say, like, what is the probably American church par excellence? Probably the Methodist church. <laughs> they, they are, they have the kind of, uh, they don't have the Calvinism that most Americans do not really live out. <laughs> uh, we really believe in freedom uh, in a way that, you know, you're not going to get that from the Puritans. Um, and this kind of revivalistic religion that's also kind of our, our the structuring the way we even think about uh, I mean look at Obama's campaign like he was the, the, the last hope he was the one who's going to say I mean everywhere has messianic movements with politics but we have a particular structure of it um, but the, in the late Roman Empire you had a lot of um, religions that acted like mystery cults uh, where you'd go under, I forget the name of the, uh, the uh, by cult, I don't even really mean like um, what Jim Jones and that kind of stuff. I just mean they were secretive. Mithras. Like, yes, so like Mithras. Um, the one, I think it's Mithras, where they go underneath the, the bull and they like cut open the bull and you yeah. like it's supposed to be the sacred moment where all the bull's like blood and guts falls on you and you're supposed to have this transcendent moment. That's some kind of transcendence. Uh, you said that we like tend to replay the same philosophical ideas over and over again, which I agree with. But I'm curious if you would agree with. I think that what is novel today is that people seem to have just rejected limits of any sort. So even in even in Roman times, you know, we didn't. The economy did not grow three percent a year. Right. The economy wasn't founded upon unlimited growth forever. I mean, they had a slave economy, but they had, they had to conquer resources, mm -hmm. where it seems like around, I don't know, the Renaissance Enlightenment, there became this notion that we can, through some Faustian mechanism, just bootstrap ourselves up. So some of that is, uh, if you look at the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, uh, it is another going back to Greek ideas, but then it gets played... So I think the, the roots of a lot of them are all kind of replaying, but then they get played on a different like uh, wavelength. So when you get to like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, man is the measure, right? That's an ancient Greek dictum. Uh, but then they, it starts uh, creating, you know, uh, eventually when they start thinking of infinity is actually believed by, I think at least Gregor of Nyssa very distinctly talks about infinity. Um, you start getting ideas of uh, things looking like um, instead of God being the center of gravity of everything in the way that we think about things and our community, once you have the Roman Empire, there's a kind of cosmopolitanism and then a kind of individualism in the way that he starts talking. Uh, and then with the Renaissance, you really get the apotheosis in some ways of like man as the measure of everything and the Enlightenment is just like out of this world, right? Like... Uh, and there's aspects of that that I think, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, <laughs> uh, but that, how should I say this? There are goods attached to some of those things and no way that we can go back on some of those fronts, 
but there's other ways in which being able to actually be rooted in tradition and be able to say like uh, unlimited growth or the idea of no limits or that the end of all things and the measure of all things is man is obvious that we're going to disagree with those things. Uh, the question then is always, and I think for modern Christians is, but how do we live or how do we function that's any different from the rest of society that lives and acts like that? Uh, because I think what we end up doing most of the time is most of our life is pretty much in the same form <laughs> as everyone else around us. We have a few different ideas, right? And maybe we engage in some pious activities, which are good, but then we don't really live at variance with the rest of the world who has its ideas are completely you know, against what it means to follow Jesus. And of course I mean follow Jesus in the most robust sense because that can also... <laughs> make it very individualistic and pietistic. And I'm, when I say pietistic, I'm not being against piety uh, because actually old ancient piety is robust and like familial and communal and all of that. But most, a lot of times, pietistic stuff, it's all about like changing your, your inner opinions about things um, without changing any other aspect of, you know, your heart gets to change, but you don't actually do anything differently your time, your money, your home, like all of that. I don't know if I answered your question, but... You did. Okay. In that self. Can I... Yes, can please. Think of that? Maybe it's relevant. You know, one idea that I came across in David Bentley Hart that has, to my mind, explained a great deal is he talks about a point in the Middle Ages at, at, and he's talking Western Middle Ages, I mm -hmm. think, at which um, there was um, a shift in the thinking of the philosophers and I guess theologians as well from understanding nature as preceding will to will preceding nature. And thereafter, that meant a redefinition of freedom, uh -huh. where freedom had once meant fulfillment of one's nature. Uh, and now it meant unhindered expression of one's will. Well, freedom with freedom as duty, rather than freedom as I'm going to do whatever I want as the highest good. Yeah, well, I mean, freedom was you know realization of what you were made to be, and and then it became not being hindered in doing whatever you chose. And you know, he says that you know essentially in time, what that leads to is the only value that remains is the simple act of choosing. And it doesn't even matter what you choose, you're free because you choose. And in fact, anything that would constrain your choice, like a nature or anything else, a, a limit is contrary to freedom and must be rejected. And um, I mean, one of the things I see in orthodoxy is a tradition that recognizes something besides the will mm -hmm. that calls us, in fact, I mean, on every side, not to give ourselves up to the expression of our own wills, but rather to try to seek to fulfill our nature by submitting our wills. I mean, you know, we understand God's freedom, then God is perfectly free in that he never wills to do anything contrary to his good nature. Mm -hmm. And that's what we desire to imitate. So, I mean, for me at least, that's a huge part of the attraction of orthodoxy. Is mm -hmm. It's a place where I can be free from my will. <laughs> Is that related to possibly in the in the West in the Middle Ages the um, I guess the uh, focus on scholasticism as defined by the 
Greek philosophies, Aristotle, Plato? So that what he's talking about is a form of uh, scholastic thought. It's a one of the schools because scholasticism uh, is a kind of series of schools of thinking where they're all kind of arguing. It's a kind of a form or way of mediating knowledge and that structuring was, knowledge. Base, trivium, quadrivium. So that is actually classical. So that goes back uh, before any of that. Um, but what you get, the liberal arts, you have Cicero writing about the liberal arts, and um, you got Cassiodorus, you have other movements in the West. Pythagoras uh, and the roots of the liberal arts. Yeah, you, you get that all, I would say Greek philosophy in general has the liberal, the liberal arts is, that's how we talk about it now, but they, they would just call that philosophy or like how to form souls. Uh, so the Pythagoreans have this way of doing it, the Aristotelians have this way of doing it, the Platonists have this way, and then you'll get kind of, I mean this in a positive sense, synchronistic where like there's some things about Aristotle that are right that Plato needs and then you get somebody like um, Proclus or um, some of the Neoplatonists, uh, Neoplatonists, I mean all, all of these are our ways of trying to categorize and deal with the, the flux of all of this. Um, but when, once you get to the scholastic period, that a lot of that starts with Abelard, with you have the sick et non, which is basically where he's trying, because you've got hundreds and hundreds of years of the fathers, and you what you start getting is this, almost like this book, except instead of commentary, what it'll have is like Christology, and then it'll have like quotes from the fathers. Uh, and then you start realizing, uh, wait a second, uh, that third century father articulates it like that, and then the fifth or sixth century, they seem to contradict each other. So how, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, scholasticism uh, starts before the Aristotelian kind of revolution. I'm probably getting way too much information, but I wanted to talk about, like, because it's also in Orthodox circles, we talk, a, uh, scholasticism is a whipping boy, so I want to give a kind of actual ground to how, what scholasticism is, uh, and then, then we'll talk about. <laughs> so scholasticism is trying to figure out how to uh, deal with what seem to be these uh, disagreements uh, between the fathers. Uh, and so what you start getting then is the growth of schools where you have masters of these things uh, and they are, this is where you start getting like a doctor in theology or a master of holy scripture and things. And they create these kind of structures to explain scripture and the theological tradition. Uh, if you look at somebody like John of Damascus, he's doing very much similar things. Uh, the issue that you start to get in the West is the scholasticism. You, you have to also start to talk about the rise of different like orders, like the mendicant orders and all of the infighting that began. <laughs> we had the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the uh, everybody arguing and debating and like, and then you introduce Aristotle, <clears throat> and then Aristotle starts for Aquinas, he's the philosopher. So when you read Aquinas and he says the philosopher, he doesn't mean Plato, he doesn't mean Augustine, he means uh, Aristotle. And so he uses Aristotle to kind of form uh, how to think. So over time you can imagine, well you've been around uh, college campuses before, and the, um, I hate to, Hi. hello. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I just 
Um. Sorry. You get all of these groups that uh, are debating, arguing, and they start to, <laughs> the whole conversation is a meta conversation about the faith. <laughs> and so you get these like, uh, and it kind of looks like the way they build their churches too. You get these like cathedrals of like edifices and they're gorgeous and everything, but like the, it's all of this kind of theologizing and I don't, some of it, there's some good stuff in there and some, and we do it in the East too. Part of it was just not translated into English or we just don't read it in the same way for the past few hundred years. But uh, there's aspects of that and what the criticism that you'll get in Orthodox circles against it is that this edifice is not the actual praxis of the faith. <laughs> what it is, is it's a lot of book learning and that's great, but it's like your right arm is like all scroll up from like working out and your left arm looks like a chicken, you know? like. So when I think you, the way to read the kind of criticism of scholasticism is not to read criticism of intelligence or criticism of trying to understand the tradition, because I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. And if you read Gregory or Basil, just go back to three hierarchs. So we're nowhere near scholasticism, right? <laughs> uh, they are attempting to understand and put to bear as many of the intellectual tools at their, at their fingertips as possible. Um, so it's not, necessarily a criticism of using your intelligence. Uh, I've seen that happen a lot, where it gets used of a criticism of scholasticism means we've got to turn our, head, our, our brains off uh, and, you know, just do the prayer rope. Well, no, the prayer rope helps lead, like, it's all, like the, the prayer rope or uh, the, pra the ascetical practice of the church or whatever you want to use, they are ways to form your mind. They are the ways to, like, put limits to things and to realize you know, uh, you can make an edifice uh, of intellectual abstractions uh, and then God can come through, like Aquinas had the experience of, and he basically said, it's all worth grass. Like it's, a, it's you know, uh, all that I've done is not worth like what God can, can do. So um, part of, so then a school within scholasticism would be like nominalism, uh, which is basically what Reed was, uh, outlining one aspect of that. And this also where you get this idea that God is this kind of uh, unhinged from like who he is. Uh, he's just will, he's just um, power. And so then all of our relationship with him is trying to navigate his power. And so we don't have any aspect of like his love for us, uh, how he's created the universe. It all becomes kind of inner psychodramatic uh, interior stuff with God. Um, and you can kind of see this you get interiority with like Augustine and confessions, and by the time like you get to Luther and you're like, what was the storm going on inside of him? Uh, because you have like, then you get to, to later revivalist religion with the same kind of stuff. It's all about this kind of interiority and they have nothing to tell you about the rest of creation or where you sit within that or what it means to be human. It's all, it gets juridical, right? It's all about like, now you've got your ticket to heaven I mean, it, it, you can see all of this, how it filters down and individualizes Christianity and oversimplifies it and you lose all of the kind of depth and beauty of ancient Christianity um, because you follow that particular path. Any questions or? <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, Sorry, what page was that on? <laughs> <laughs> that was, of that do you think is just cultural? So you have, like, say, the Greek preference for, you know, maybe a theology that's more suffused with 
for lack of a better term, the heart, compared to like a Germanic people who sharp-minded, very keen on just kind of hammering everything out. I think I like Spangler right now. Uh huh. You want to tell? So, well, who's Spangler? Oswald Spangler was a an author, probably not well enough to speak to in front of other people. But his, <laughs> you're already being recorded his, too. His, yeah, no, probably recording. That's great. He, he theorized that uh, civilizations, like any living entity, had a life cycle. So they arose and they um, they had a creative, productive stage, and then they reached their peak and slowly declined. And uh, he also said that there were different types of cultures. So. I guess the the Western European culture would be Faustian, mm-hmm. uh, whereby they they seek to conquer, uh, sort of like the Elon Musk philosophy. But we just go to outer <laughs> space at some point. We'll keep well, going. We can upload our, our entire selves into the, yeah. the internet. Uh, and then well, oh, Magian. There was Magian culture, which is that like, like Iranian or something? Yeah, Persian. So so Bullocks too. I think <laughs> the idea of certain aspects of what. Uh, these kind of like because you can always when you talk in like these abstract terms I think you're always going to get lost and then you start talking about nations and like huge bodies of people in ways that I like might be kind of right but then it starts to get um, uh, dictating this is what you know for so this idea that like Greeks are very like heart centered and Germans are cold maniacal like rational. I'm all stereotype, I grant, but like it is. But it is. Greeks totally play into that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's uh, our. I won't name who this one particular person was, but he was telling me it was a. Uh, somebody said, and they meant it as a compliment that. He had a Russian soul and a German mind, and not the other way around. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something to that. Uh, but it, look at Orthodox cultures, and you're spanning a whole lot of different things. I think with the uh, different cultures, different like the Russians and Greeks are pretty different people, um, but they share the same faith. Um, versus like Serbs or Romanians, yes, they're they're like cousins to each other in some ways, or there's like similarities. Uh, but, and especially then if you like, I'm sure if you were a Russian who grew up, you know, 20 years in the Russian church and you came over here to like St. Anne's, you'd be like, this is really American. And we're all like, we're really foreign. Like, no, we're really American. Like, uh, and there's no way around that. But I think when it, in regards to like how the tradition forms or like, uh, theologically, yes, I do think there are different times where there's particular things even the way that Clement like articulates and pulls these quotes out, if you go back to like the Victorian era, well, that's very British centric, but like uh, go back to Russia, uh, they don't talk like this, but they are these. Some of these are just perennial problems, right? Like, what is it, what is my life for? What is like is the answer in God, or is the answer in like the universe, or is the answer inside myself? So occultism, uh, materialism, scientism. Uh, naturalism or some kind of deity then you get paid and then you get all the options and those are like the basic options because that's reality otherwise if you're not there then I don't know where you are <laughs> like kind of reality dictates there's only so many avenues that you can go um, so I think there's basic universalisms that occur uh, well I'm just saying there's there was scholasticism uh, throughout the Orthodox world in the last millennium 
and uh, you have some people who think that was the worst thing ever, and you have other people who think that wasn't half bad. So it's an inner debate within the Orthodox Church. Oh, Barlow? Oh, let's not go there yet. <laughs> because that's complicated. Uh, so, does it, so Barlam is the, is the uh, nemesis of Gregory Palamas. So we'll, we'll lay that aside for now.